the book of Matthew. You know, we've been looking at, the last couple weeks, we've been looking at some of the parables of Jesus, and we want to understand what they say, what they really mean uh, for us today in 2018. Uh, And a little background, Matthew 25 has three parables in it, and each one of these parables kind of builds on top of the other ones, and they all kind of make a similar point. So we're primarily tonight going to deal with the third one, but we'll talk about the other ones too. This chapter in your Bible, Matthew chapter 25, it occurs right before uh, the crucifixion. Jesus knows he's going to die and that he's going to ascend to heaven and that his disciples are going to see him no more. But in these three disciples, what Jesus is doing, he's encouraging them that the day's going to come when he's coming back, right? And he's going to come back. He's not coming back again as a baby in a manger, but he is going to judge all men. So the point of all three parables is that we should be prepared for Jesus coming back. That's the point of these three parables in Matthew 25. But again, each one builds on top of each other. The first parable is about 10 maidens that are supposed to be ready for uh, this big marriage party, but they don't know when they're going to be picked up. The groom is the one who decides when the time is. And uh, so he tells them, just be ready. Make sure that you're ready. Five of the maidens are wise, and they're ready to go. They've got everything that they need, and five of them were unwise. Okay, the other five are like, I don't know when he's coming, and it is raining. I'm not going to get no oil from my lamp in the rain, okay? I don't even know if he's coming, okay? I don't know. I don't know. And they, so they watch TV, and they sit around. So then he comes. They're not ready. They get left behind. Uh, and so the point of that one is that Jesus is coming back. And he wants us to be ready for when he's coming back. And that we don't know when Jesus is coming back, but he's coming back, okay? And then the second parable, you know, so what does that look like to wait and be prepared for Jesus to come back? The second parable kind of tells us that. It's about a master. He went on a trip. He left some money with three different servants. To one, he gave five talents. To one, he gave two. And one, he gave one. Each talent in this story, in its time to today, is worth about $15,000. Okay. Well, to demonstrate, Hunter, give me fifteen thousand. <laughs> listen, but the one he gave five, one two, and one one, and he tells them uh, to invest the money and get a return while he's gone. But the third guy is scared. He's scared of the master, so what he did was he buried it and waited for the master to get back. And when the master returned, the other two had returns on their investment on the talents that he had given them. But the third one didn't have any return. And the master says that he's wicked because there's no return. Remember that. In other words, what it means to be ready for the return of Christ is to leverage what Christ has given us for the kingdom. That's what it means. Look at this next slide right here. Tonight, as we talk about this, I want you to understand we're not talking about money. We are talking about money, but not only money. Get that through your head, okay? God has given you a certain amount of time, talent, and treasure, and he's going to hold you responsible to use them for the kingdom. If you're a believer tonight, God has given you a certain amount of time, treasure, talents, all those things. He is absolutely going to hold you responsible for how you use those for the kingdom. So we might still be asking, well, what does that look like? The first one tells us to be ready uh, when Jesus comes back. This one tells us that he's going to hold us responsible to leverage whatever he's given us for his kingdom. And so what does that actually look like? And that's why we have the third parable. The third parable tells us that. Uh, We get the essence of what it means to be a follower today in 2018. 
And let me ask you this question. Why, why do you think, how do you define or the essence of really being a Christian is? What is that? Uh, look at this next slide. Francis Chan, I don't agree with all of his theology, but in Crazy Love, he said this. He said, just to read the Bible, attend church, and avoid big sins, is this really the passionate, wholehearted life of discipleship Jesus was calling us to? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. For some of us, just to read the Bible and attend church and avoiding big sins would be a big step forward. I'm going to be honest with you. Let's don't pretend, okay? Let's, we're living over here in Realville, okay? Over here in Realville, if we were all doing that, I think the church would take a big step forward. But is that really what passionate following in love with Jesus, a passionate about Christ and his calling on our life? Is that really all there is? And this third parable is a scary picture of how Jesus defines a Christian. And so it's the culmination of the other two, and it's what it looks like to live with your lamp trimmed and your bag packed and what it looks like to invest your talents in a way that will please your master. So look in your Bible, Matthew 25, and I'm going to start in verse number 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, in other words, he's coming back. When he comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Again, I want you to notice the authoritative position that Jesus is in. No longer, the Bible describes him, no longer is he the man of sorrows, born in a manger, meek, lowly, and, and mild, riding on a donkey. Now he is the son of man in his glory, sitting on his throne, the throne of the universe. He has authority over everybody and everything. It's going to be different when he comes back. Look at verse 33. It says, and he'll set the sheep on his right hand, all you people. And all the goats. I didn't tell you where to sit, okay? That's not on me. I'm kidding. That has nothing to do with this. But all right. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, uh, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? In other words, they're like, I'm pretty sure we would have remembered that. Like Jesus, if you're naked, hungry, and thirsty, and we clothed you, fed you, and drank you, or gave you something to drink, I feel like we would remember that. Look at verse 38. When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Verse 39. Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren. If you, if you uh, write in your Bible, underline that phrase, my brethren, you did it to me. So exactly who is Jesus talking about? Now, meaning uh, really well-meaning people, they want to say that this, reply, this is about all poor people everywhere, but it's clearly not. It's not referring to all poor people everywhere. I mean, it's important to care for the poor, but specifically what these verses is referring to is poor Christians, poor Christians. He says, the least of these, my brethren, my brethren, now take a minute and let it sink in what Jesus is saying. That when you do a kindness to one of Jesus' brethren, a Christian, 
It's the same thing as doing a kindness to him. And when you persecute or mean or ugly or gossip about one of his brethren, it's the same as if you're doing it to him. Uh, Jesus takes it personal. Now, and, and also to back this up, it's not in your notes or on the slides, but remember on the road to Damascus before Paul was Paul when he used to be Saul and Saul was going all over the place, murdering Christians, wanting to take them out. And then he met Jesus on the Damascus road and Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting them? No, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus takes it very personal what happens to his children, very personal. Uh, and I think of it like this. If you know me, you know I struggle not hating people, don't you? Does anybody get on your nerves? Amen? Come see me for counseling. I was kidding. No, I'm serious. Do you ever struggle not hating somebody? You can get on your nerves. Just they wear you out. They never got nothing good to say. I mean, it can be difficult. I'm trying to decide which story I'm going to tell you. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, you know who I have a real hard time not hating? Just being honest. Uh, people that are mean to my kids. How about you? Somebody's mean to your kid? I don't care if they're this big or that big. <laughs> I'll break you. No, I'm kidding. That's never happened. That's never happened. Touch my daughter again, man. I'll rip your arm off. Beat your daddy with it, okay? Don't play with me. Isn't it hard not to hate people that are mean to your kid? I mean, seriously, just think about it for a second. But, and so I'm just, I'm just making this up, folks. Uh, but if you're nice to my kids, do you think I like you and I love you? Absolutely. And you're like, well, you're a preacher. You're supposed to love everybody the same. No, I love people that are nice to my kids more than the others. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> I mean, I heard a preacher one time telling a story about being on the ball field. And sometimes preachers forget they're preachers at the ball field. <laughs> and his son was playing baseball, and... Um, and the umpire was like doing a terrible job. Have you ever heard that happening ever? He's doing a terrible job. He was clearly biased according to this pastor. And his son got hit. And it was like the second time in the game that his son got hit. And then the umpire got on to the son and said he was crowding the plate. That's why he was getting hit. And he said he was having a hard time sitting still. He's like, Jesus, hold me now. And he's just wanting to just rip into that guy. And then there was this lady in the stands over here to his left. And she jumped up and started saying really bad things about the umpire, right, taking up for his son. And he recognized her. It was a big church. And he kind of recognized her. I think she goes to my church. <laughs> and she's just blessing that umpire. That little boy didn't do nothing wrong. He did blah, 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 blah. And yeah, he said, you know what? <laughs> I love her. <laughs> Usually she would make a sermon illustration for how a Christian shouldn't act in public. Listen, if somebody's mean to your kids, you're going to be upset with them. If somebody's nice to your kids, that pleases you, right? It's, you like for your kids to... People to be nice to your children because you love them. And how much more does Jesus care about his children? Right? How upset is Jesus when people hurt his children? And that's how God feels about us as believers. Doing something for one of his children is like doing it for him. Look in verse 41. 
It said, then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked uh, uh, naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in person, uh, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Go down to verse 44. It says, then they, will, they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Listen, there's three important questions that this parable answers. Number one, write this down. Take some notes tonight. It's talking about who gets into heaven. Now, don't let it fool you at all. The sheep and goats, um, it's talking about believers. This parable is actually a little bit alarming to me because it's really clear that everybody who thinks they're a believer isn't. Now, I believe, my theology, my worldview is this, that if you're not a believer, you know it. But I think people lie to themselves, right? I, I don't believe in this. I can't believe it. I didn't, I'm, I'm in hell. I trusted Christ as my Lord. No, you know if you did or didn't. I mean, I really believe that. You know if you sincerely did or not. But it seems like in this parable that not everyone who considers himself a Christian uh, is going to heaven. The sheep and the goats all seem to recognize who the master is. And in all three of these parables, they seem to recognize. No one's here is like, like, whoa, you know, who are you? Where's Buddha? Right? Everybody seems to recognize who the guy is. All the maidens in the first parable considered themselves friends of uh, the bridegroom, all the servants in the parable of the talents considered themselves in the employee of the master. This judgment does not separate Christians from the rest of the world. It seems to separate real Christians from fake Christians. That's what this parable is showing us. And make no mistake about it. Um, don't let anybody tell you different. If anybody comes to these parables and they say it's talking about rewards, that's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about a loss of reward, like some kind of punishment or something. No, I mean, as a matter of fact, look at how Jesus ended the parable of the maid, uh, maidens. Look in verse number 10, in the last part of verse 10, Matthew 25, verse 10. And the last part of that verse says, and the door was shut, verse 11. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. The story about the, the three uh, servants with the talents, with the money. Look at this, Matthew 25, verse 26. The first part of verse 26 says, But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. Now go down to verse 30. It says, And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not about rewards, okay? And then go down to verse number 41 in your Bible. To the goats. Sorry, I'm kidding. It says, then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you curse, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I don't think it could be any clearer, heaven and hell. He's talking about heaven, those who are going to heaven and those who are going to hell. There are a lot of people who in church who think that they're Christians on some level and they're tragically mistaken. Now, what exactly is the difference between those going to heaven and hell? Now, we know that to be saved, you have to humble, humble yourself before God, admit that you're a sinner, ask him to forgive you, right? Place your faith in Jesus and the death, burial, and resurrection for the salvation of your sins, right? His perfection for your imperfection, his righteousness for your unrighteousness, right? Trust in Christ is how you're saved. 
But how do we know that that's been applied? In these parables, it literally, it doesn't, sh- it doesn't, and the one about the talents. But other than that, it doesn't really seem to be about what anyone believed. Does that make sense? It doesn't seem to be that. The only difference in the sheep and the goats is what they did or did not do. Um, they were actively, tangibly, the sheep were engaged, the goats weren't. And so what, the lesson that I think is here is that apart from true faith in God, all of our religious activity is useless. Um, I didn't put this in your notes, and um, it's not on the slides, but over in Isaiah 58, God says to Israel, you know, you're fasting, you're doing all these sacrifices, you're doing all these things, and they mean nothing to me if you ignore the poor. You know, you claim to know me, but you don't care about my people. And so all your sacrifice means nothing. Look at this in your notes, Proverbs 21, verse 13. It says, whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. Now, again, doesn't the Bible teach that salvation is by faith alone, uh, through grace alone? Isn't this a contradiction? No, I hope you hear me tonight. Salvation is by literally faith alone, grace, the mercy of God. That's it. Nothing that you can do to earn it. But what we're talking about is how does real faith show up in our life? How does it really show up? The kind of faith that save you, uh, saves you is more than tipping your hat to God and, and just attending church occasionally. Look at this next slide. Saving faith, according to these parables, transforms you from the inside out, and you demonstrate that by being engaged in the mission of God. You ever met somebody that got saved and nothing changed? That's probably what we're talking about tonight. James, Jesus' half-brother, said this, James 2.17. He says, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, intellectual belief without a change of heart and doing good works is like a body with no life in it. It just doesn't work. And here also, it, it, it's useful to kind of really connect the dots on who Jesus is referring to and this sheep and this goats and did you take care of my brethren or did you not? These are specifically, these are Christians who are suffering because of their commitment to the message, because they are hungry, in prison, they're needy. Um, if you believe, and basically Jesus is saying, if you believe my message, if you believe the gospel, you're going to be moved to care about people that are being persecuted and hurt because of the message. If you really believe this message, then your heart is going to break for those who are being hurt because of it, and you're going to be moved to action. Remember that time that in, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus sends out his disciples uh, on their first mission as his representatives to preach, uh, to preach what he preached, to heal like he healed, to go out and tell people about him, and they went out doing that, and he tells them they're going to be dependent on the hospitality. Every village you go into, you know, they go into the first house and, and all of that, and here's what he said, Matthew 10, verse 40. He said, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Again, all right, if you're with me and they receive you, they receive me. But he, what he, the flip is also true then, logically, right? So if they reject you, they're also rejecting me. He equates the welcome of his representatives with the acceptance of his message. And, they, and then uh, here again in Matthew 25, he's saying the same thing. If you really believe my gospel, how can you not be moved by the suffering of other believers, right? 
who are suffering because of their commitment to my message. He's not saying that we'll be saved by giving to help others. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying because you clothed them, because you fed them, because you did these things, now you're saved. That's not, what it, that's not the message of these parables at all. He's saying because you're saved, you care. And because you're not saved, you don't. That's what he's saying. Heaven and hell. James would say it this way. Look at James 1.27. He says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And again, pure and undefiled religion, church attendance. I'm big on church attendance, y'all. But that's not pure and undefiled religion. Bible knowledge, the sign of genuine saving faith is a passionate commitment to what God cares about, to what and that's people, and that's people, specifically his people. There's two ways to tell what you believe. One way is your mouth, and the other way is your life. One of those two ways is way more reliable than the other. Can you guess which one it is? It's your life. It's your life. The question is not what your mouth says that you believe. Look at this next line. The question is, what does your life say you believe? Really? really say that you believe. Which leads me to number two. Write this down. Can we be lukewarm Christians? It's possible, I guess. But you don't see lukewarm Christians in this parable, do you? You see sheep and goats, goats and sheep. And then he didn't say, I've got some sheep over here in the middle that they're on, you know, they're in the crock pot simmering. <laughs> sheep and goats, heaven and hell. That's all that you see here. Lukewarm Christians are Christians who sit in churches, believe the message, but aren't sold out to Jesus um, in no real way meaningful engaged in the mission at all. It comes from Revelation chapter 3 where Jesus is uh, criticizing that church and he's saying, uh, you're not hot, you're not cold, right? Therefore, I will spew you out of my mouth and vomit you. Have you ever drank something like you thought you were drinking water, but it was milk? Or you thought you were drinking one thing and it's another? And as soon as it hits your mouth, you're not ready for that. And that's almost the same sensation we're talking about here. Is as if you think that you're drinking something cold or hot or whatever, but it's neither. And then Jesus says, I wish you were cold. I wish you that you were hot, but you're neither. And because of that, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus is describing the same kinds of Christians in these three parables. They considered themselves Christians um, but they don't live in a way that's anticipating Jesus coming back. Um, and that really bothered me this week as I read the parables, right? Because I kept trying to look for lukewarm people in the parables. They're just not here. You won't find them here. There's no middle ground here, sheep, goats, that's it. You're either committed to Christ and his mission or you're not. There's really zero middle ground. I tried to find it for you guys. I can't help you. There's none here. You either praise for your commitment right? Or you're cast out into hell. One or the other, no middle ground. He puts the lukewarm Christian. Again, and if you're here and you hear that phrase, lukewarm Christian, right? And you're like, am I a lukewarm Christian? You're really on like dangerous ground. That's what I would say. Like real precarious ground. Hey, do you really want to be that which Jesus wants to vomit out of his mouth? I mean, that's gross. Okay. First, and second, no, that's not what you want to be. And then we come to passages like this where there's no lukewarm Christians. There's nobody in the middle, sheeps and goats. I believe, and I think Scripture bears out, and I didn't take time to flesh this out for you guys tonight, but I, the Scripture does point out 
um, uh, lukewarm Christians, real believers who, for whatever reason, aren't on fire for God, but you don't find that here. And one of the things in these parables that just always gripped me is how the, um, when, when we, the parable with the servant and the masters and the talents, the guy that buried them, buried the talent, and then when the master comes back, he unburied it. Like, here, I didn't lose anything because I know you're a hard guy, and here's the talent. He doesn't call him lazy. He doesn't call him indifferent. He calls him wicked, wicked. He's saying it was wicked that you did not invest what I gave you, right? And so that, what, that's what worries me about lukewarm Christians, that when we're being lukewarm, that Christ isn't like, oh, you can do better. He looks at it like, man, you're being wicked, and I don't want to be wicked. I mean, I, and I used to read this. I think, what wicked thing did he do? But not investing what God has given him into the kingdom, Christ said that was wicked. Now, a lot of us uh, here at Grace, we might talk a lot about the Ten Commandments, and what we don't do, we know there's a sense of commission and there's also sense of what? Omission, right? We don't talk about that nearly as much because it's not nearly as obvious. But there's many times where we're guilty of being wicked because we aren't doing what God has called us to do. It's that simple. Uh, we preach about the first one a lot, but the latter is really what we see on display in this parable. I mean, the question is, have you offered your life your time, your talent, your treasure to his kingdom, Christ, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the line of the tribe of Judah, the one who saved your very soul and redeemed you from hell, conquered you know, death, the grave, devil, just everything, and has given you eternal life? Have you really given him your time, talent, and treasures, or are you lukewarm? Are you all in, or are you kind of in? Like me, in the summertime, you go to a pool, and it's cold. You know what I do? Yeah, everybody says just jump in, right? I know that's the best way mentally. Just jump in. Jumpers, anybody just jump in and get it over with? All you brave souls. Who are the rest of you like me? You get halfway in. You get a little higher and a little higher. Listen, there's nobody in these parables halfway in, right? They're all in or they're all out. So what do lukewarm Christians look like? Look at this next slide. Lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They only want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. They don't mind at all looking, acting, being, sinning, just like the world. They just don't want to pay for it, right? They want to ride the rides at the fair. They just don't want to pay admission. Any of y'all ever sneak into the fair when you were a kid and not pay? Anybody? <laughs> when you went, they, didn't, they hadn't invented fences yet. Amen. It don't, <laughs> I knew I'd get one in-law joke in before the night was over with. Look, we want to ride the rides, but we don't want to pay the price, and so... We're lukewarm Christians. Next one, look at this. Look at this next slide. Lukewarm people love God, but not with all their heart, their soul, and their strength. I think this shows up a lot in worship, just to be honest with you. I mean, not that you have to, you know, have a come loose in worship, but it's obvious to me on Sunday morning there's some faithful Grace Baptist Church members that aren't interested in worshiping the King of Kings at all. I don't know. It do that doesn't look like love. I'll stay on topic. Okay. This person, they don't love them with all their heart, so they're not really committed to avoiding sin. God is a really good fire escape tool again, but not somebody they think about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Look at this next slide. Lukewarm people think that it's kind of weird when others are sold out for Christ and dedicated to his mission, right? Some believers are like, you know, I mean, I believe in Jesus and everything, but that guy takes it a little too serious. 
lukewarm. <laughs> right? I mean, that, you just classify yourself. I mean, I believe in God and everything, but you go to have a life lukewarm. There you go. Now, they think that you're weird when you're so, you love Jesus, right? And you really do. Uh, what the lukewarm think is weird is really just New Testament book of Acts Christianity. Look at this next one. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbors, their coworkers, or their friends. And the reason is they're not really in love with the Savior. They're not really in love with the message, right? They don't want to be rejected. They don't want to be uncomfortable. They don't want to be weird. Weird. Spurgeon said this, you're either a missionary or an imposter. Look at this next slide. Lukewarm people uh, love their comfort and rarely give to others in a truly sacrificial way. And again, I'm not talking about church and tithing. I'm just saying no giving, no investing. Look at the next slide. Lukewarm people tend to give God the leftovers, not their first and best. And again, I'm not talking about money, time, treasure, and talents. God, I'll give you the time that's left over. i give you whatever's left over from my talents, and I'll give you whatever treasure that's left over. The prophet Malachi talked about a bunch of priests. They gave God all the cripple cattle. They sacrificed all the, the raggedy-looking uh, sacrifices. They gave God all the raggedy stuff, and then they kept them, the good stuff for themselves, and they assumed that God was pleased with them because, look, we sacrificed all these raggedy old cows and whatnot, and uh, they thought God would be happy with that. And God, uh, again, it's not, you know, it's Malachi, I think, 1 verse 8, maybe 1 verse 18. Um, God said they were evil because they withheld their best, and gave God the raggedy sacrifices. Not merely inadequate, like not enough, evil, evil. So we might need to stop calling our lukewarmness uh, and apathy, a busy schedule, bills to pay, forgetfulness. God calls it evil when we don't give them our first and our best. And so the question is, are you engaged in the mission of God? Is your Christianity just a belief that kind of makes you feel good about hell and heaven? Or is it something that's really impacted and changed your life? Are you engaged personally in the mission of God with your time, treasure, and talents? Again, this isn't about money, but you got any? It's not about... I've ever tell you... Okay, okay, okay. Okay. a church that I served, I don't want to even say what it is. So one, it's one church one time that this preacher named Marcus Kelly was serving at. Um, bald-headed guy, super handsome. And uh, I would sit up there, and there was a choir. And, and so they'd take the offering. And like the guys would never get her. And so the ushers would come and give the offering plate uh, to the choir. I think they might have. And then the choir would pass it down around. And then they would try to give me the offering plate. Imagine, picture that, the pastor with a big old plate full of money. You know, walking around. I avoid church money like the plague. I won't even take a child's money trying to give it in BBS. No, I rebuke you, Satan. Get away from me. You won't, honestly, you won't find a pastor that cares less about your money. I can say that in all sincerity. God, I don't care. I mean, I care a little bit about mine. Amen. You'll, you'll never hear me try to guilt you into giving, trying to convince you to give. I'll preach what the Bible says. You should be giving. You should be giving sacrificially. But I'm not ashamed of what the Bible says, but I'll never try to manipulate you into giving, giving money. God will take care of that. If he wants you to give, he'll speak to you, and you'll be obedient or you won't. You'll be a sheep or you'll be a goat. I mean, it's up to you. 
And that's why, I'm, okay, oh, okay. Okay, that's why, like, on VBS Family Night, we don't take up an offering. You want to know why we don't take up an offering? Because if we took up an offering on VBS, if we take up offerings for the kids to do stuff, you know, all, all during the week. But on Family Night, we don't take an offering because the last thing I want is for some guy who ain't stepped foot in church for 20 years uh, to come in the door, and then we pass the plate around and say, see, that's all they want is our money. We've never wanted your money. We've never needed your money, and we're not asking for your money now. God will provide. He's got cattle on thousands of hills. God doesn't need your money. You need God's blessings. But he does not need your money anyway. And so I could just care less. All right, look at this next slide. This is Robert Murray McShane, great theologian, many, many, many years ago, nice curls. He said this about this very passage that we're talking about tonight. He said this when he was talking to his congregation. He said, I am concerned for the poor, but more for you. I know not what Christ will say to you in the great day. I fear there are many hearing me who may know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none away. Enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. Uh, one of the signs of genuine saving faith is a commitment to God, the people of God, and the mission of God, right? And a generous heart, that's just part of it. There are two ways for us to tell what you believe, what your mouth says and what your life says. And one of those two ways is more reliable than the others. So that brings us to our third question. Look at this. Circle this in your notes. Number three, so who should we be serving? This whole thing's about serving, time, treasure, and talents. Who should we be serving? Write this down. Go to that next slide. We should be serving persecuted believers around the world. Persecuted believers wherever we find them. We live mostly isolated from this in the United States, uh, but by just about every measure, the persecution of believers around the world is at a rate that has been unheard of at any point in history. Just in 2017 alone, there were over 7,000 uh, 3,000 something Christians were murdered just for being Christians. This is a very, more, many more Christians than this were murdered, but where we know beyond a shadow of a doubt they took them out and murdered them for being Christian. Over 3,000 Christians were murdered just for being a Christian in 2017, and twice that number were raped and abducted in 2017. Uh, and they're saying 793 churches were attacked. Um, and, and they're saying that 2017 was one of the worst years in, since they've been keeping track of this thing for the persecution of Christians. So what do you do? How do you serve? And by the way, I think it's really important to be aware of this. Look at this next slide. The thing that I recommend is the Voice of the Martyrs. It's an amazing ministry. If you can go to the, write that down, Voice of the Martyrs. You can go to their website. You can subscribe to their newsletter. You can get their email newsletters. And it will absolutely break your heart, the true stories of what's happening uh, around the world and the life of persecuted Believers, get informed and start praying for these people. In China right now, China and all the wonderful things that are happening in China, they're destroying churches at a record rate. You can get on YouTube right now and just type in the words China, China Church, and you'll find bulldozers knocking over buildings. You'll find construction workers ripping off crosses, and you'll find uh, good Christian women screaming in the street. It's happening every day. Now, next, write this down. Who else should we be concerned with? Well, poor believers around the world. Again, in this parable, it's obvious. You know, th th those in prison, those that are naked and poor and hungry, we should care about poor believers around the world. Uh, many believers, Christians, just like you, believe the same thing as you. 
right? Believe the Bible just like you do. And there are other parts of the world, and they're basically starving to death. Now, a ministry that I recommend, look at this next slide, is uh, Compassion. Now, you can, uh, they do a great deal of work. There's other Southern Baptist agencies that do a great deal of work as also. But you can adopt a child and pay for that child and get updates. It's a really awesome ministry. But they don't just do charity. They, um, they do community building programs. They build schools. They provide jobs. It's an all-encompassing ministry, well worth investing in. So who else should we care about? Write this down. We should care about neglected believers in our own community, right? Neglected believers in our own community. We could just start with what James said, widows and orphans, widows and orphans, widows and orphans. We could start right there. The point, okay, and then I put this in my notes so I wouldn't forget. I'm giving you these things. These are outside church things. Does that make sense? You don't have to wait for the church to start a program before you start praying and caring and doing. You don't have to wait for us to come up with the next great idea and for have Brother Marcus up here trying to convince you to get involved before you start caring, praying, and doing. You don't need me to do that. If there's a need, you meet that need. If somebody needs to be prayed for, you pray for it. And then maybe eventually you could lead the church to be involved. And I, I was talking to Judy this week. The church is like a big ship sometimes. It's not always very nimble. Does that make sense? If you're trying to turn a battleship, it takes a minute to change direction. But you're like those little torpedo boats. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm Any people, torpedo boat people? Right? Fast, nimble, you can hit and move, hit and move, and hit and move. There's nothing stopping you from seeing a need, meeting a need, praying for people, and being aggressive in God's calling on your life. Many times you'll hear people say this. Some church is doing a ministry, and somebody will say that, I wish our church was doing that. Well, why aren't you? Maybe you're the one that God's calling to start a ministry. But make sure that God's calling you. True story. We had some ladies that were attending here back early in 2017. And then what's that? What's the women's event? Yada, 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 yo-yo sisterhood. I don't know. Really what is it? Yada sisterhood. I've never been invited. And um, still mad. Yada sisterhood. They went to Yada sisterhood and they came back. They said, we ought to be doing that. We ought to do our own thing. Invite all these. And it's great. Invite all these women. And I'm like, Okay, join a Sunday school class first, right, before you convince me to invest thousands of dollars in this new ministry that you think that we need to start. Come to church two weeks in a row. Let me just see something. And you know what never happened? Two weeks in a row, Sunday school, seeing something. So if God is calling you, you do it. Do what you can do. Time, treasure, and talents. And if God is leading you, you can be in the voice in church for a new ministry to start something right? But it starts with your faithfulness. So the final question, number four, look at this, circle this in your notes. Well, so which one are you, a sheep or a goat? When you hear about persecuted believers, do you care? When you hear about poor believers around the world, do you care? When you think about neglected and believers right here in our community, widows and orphans who nobody is caring for them, meeting their needs, or even the basic social economic pressures, do you care? That's a place to start. Let me tell you this, if you don't, if you don't care about persecuted believers, if you don't care about the poor, poor Christian, other Christians, if you don't, you know, widows and orphans, whatever, not your problem, you're probably a goat. That's what this parable tells me. Sheep and goats. There are two ways for us to tell what you believe. One is the mouth, the other one is your life. And one of them is reliable and the other one isn't. Uh, R.C. Sproul said, not everybody goes to heaven. R.C. Sproul one time said, again, don't agree with all his theology, he said, uh, Americans uh, today believe in justification by death. 
that all you need to do to go to heaven is die. Does that make sense? Have you ever been to a funeral where that person didn't go to heaven? Supposedly? We know that's not true. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says that we humble ourselves before God, right? We acknowledge that we're sinners, and by faith we turn from our sin and we turn to Christ and ask him to forgive us. And the Bible says that anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. When you put your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he will save you, he will change you, he will change your heart. You'll go from being a goat to being a sheep. And you won't have to worry about, do I care about the poor? Do I care about the persecuted? Do I care about the widows and orphans? He's going to give you a brand new heart. And when he does that, you're going to care about the poor. You're going to care about the persecuted. You're going to care about the widows and the orphans. And don't think that what we're talking about tonight is super Christianity. We're talking about regular, basic New Testament Christianity. There's something beautiful. I've been talking about this a lot lately. There's something beautiful about the Christian life that goes to bed at night, gets up in the morning, thanks God, praise God, gets in the Bible, goes to work, works all day, is a witness and a testimony for Christ right there on the job, comes home, goes to the ball fields, does whatever, is a witness and testimony for Jesus Christ everywhere they go, loves their family, loves their children, comes home, goes to bed, and does it again. There's something beautiful, magical about the mundane. But even in the mundane, you have time to care and to pray and to, God has given you everything you need to use your time, your treasure, and your talents for his kingdom. Tonight, which one are you? Are you sheep or are you goats? Do you care about the people that Jesus cares about? Or do you, at the end of the day, really only care about yourself and your health? I hope that you're sheep. And if you're not, pray, receive Christ, and he'll do everything necessary. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed.